These episodes feature contemporary artists presenting the latest exhibitions and projects. This podcast is brought to you by the Peritin Gallery, based in Paris, Hong Kong, New York, Seoul, Tokyo, and Shanghai. Matthew, you uh, are born in Kentucky, uh, U.S., and then you live and work currently in Brooklyn, New York. And you studied at uh, the Yale University. And you have participated in an amazing uh, number of interesting exhibitions, uh, notably in the Lyon Biennial 2013, to which maybe we'll come later in our conversation. But I would like to begin with the exhibition because actually, as a matter of fact, um, I knew of Matthew's work, um, but I have never seen the originals before. So this is my first time that I see the originals in the exhibition. Before I uh, uh, informed myself about his work, seeing the images, and I realized to what extent uh, the wood, the texture, and the color of the originals are different from what we see on the internet and what we see on the photographic depictions of his work. And um, I would like perhaps to start with this and maybe with the title of the exhibition. The title of the exhibition is Ramos. Um, well, the, the title of the exhibition came to me. Uh, language is a, a really big part of what I do in the sense of titling um, and also reading as a primary inspirational source for me. And um, often in the process of working on a, a work, whether it be a drawing or a, actually a sculpture, um, often in the interpretation process, I'm doing a lot of research uh, on the internet, reading about science or um, something of this sort. And so for me, the title, um, ref Ramos is, um, is, the best way to describe it is, is that when you have a, in science, when you have a tree that explains um, all the different life forms. So let's say you have uh, a, a tree of reptiles, and from reptiles, like there are, you know, snakes or lizards or these kinds of things. So the main, in English, the main word for that tree is cladogram. And so the title comes from one branch is called one of one branch on the cladogram is called ramus, and so it's Latin for branch. Um, and so for me, this exhibition, while I was working on it, I, I came to the feeling that the works themselves were almost like species, that they were like um, uh, foreign organisms that could be from the ocean floor or they could be from um, another planet altogether. But that because of the way that the parts fit together and because of the kinds of systems that I use in my vocabulary, I, I started to feel very strongly during this exhibition that these were almost creatures. Shall we, shall we elaborate, uh, elaborate on this a little bit? Because I think it's very interesting. So this is, we, we discussed it before. So there's organic, organic uh, feel, elements, shapes in your work. Then some people describe it, for example, as fantastical constructions. Other people describe it as um, totemic and surreal qualities of objects hmm. that you work uh, out. And uh, others also say that it is uh, something which 
perhaps is close to psychedelia. Hmm. So could you elaborate on this? For me, when I'm drawing, which is the beginning of how almost everything starts, um, I've found over the last four or five years that there's a way in which I draw that lends itself to r relating to nature. And so for me, I, I actually believe that there's an intuitive understanding of nature inside me that my unconscious is connected to. And so even though uh, I'm not a scientist, um, I believe that there's a, an intuitive and an unconscious way in which I understand the empirical side of nature. And so in some of the works, though they're not direct, directly about something real, they allude to different kinds of systems. Um, and um, it's just, for me, as a creative person, just relaxing led me to this um, discovery. It's not something that I decided that I would like to make works that are about nature or about systems or something like this. I just relaxed and naturally what my muscles do is draw shapes um, that I think relate to nature. Shall we maybe talk a little more about this uh, very interesting connection between drawing and mm. sculpture and your work? Because I would like to read, um, because I think the, the text actually is quite beautiful. And then we uh, also discovered that the text written was, was written by uh, an artist who I work with a long time ago when I lived in New York. So, um, and he writes beautifully about the connection between the drawing and uh, the sculpture, about this process. I just want to, because I mean, I like this line very much. Um, he says that you start with the drawing, your process, and the drawing is usually in black and white. Mm. So there's a multiple translation from the drawing, black and white, into sculpture and color. Mm -hmm. And he writes, that you're translating each sculpture from drawing to object, and that that requires solving problems of balance, resolving impossible perspectives, interpreting texture, and adding color. Could you explain a little more how it works? For me, I, when it comes time to be creative, I'm not someone that creates on demand. Um, in my life, I'm governed by uh, my discipline. And so that discipline um, culminates in a series of practices. And so for me, one of my practices is drawing. And so in this way, drawing is not a means to create sculpture. Drawing is a means to itch the scratch of creativity. And so um, I draw during time periods where, I, where either I feel inspired by something I, I've seen or thought about or maybe often just simply to be doing something. Um, so I, sometimes while watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I might be making drawings. Um, and I draw in often tiny little books. But for this show, um, I, I drew these larger charcoals. I thought we were going to have images of them, but I can't seem to find them, but regardless, they're charcoal drawings. And for me, the interesting thing about drawing is that there's so little risk involved in drawing, meaning time, material, um, even the risk of making a mistake. Um, and so it, there's an area here um, where once you're drawing, y you might be discovering constantly new vocabulary 
And that's, for me, that's the reason to practice without uh, demand. The more, the more you practice without these constraints, the more likely I think you're able to create something on accident. And so for me, um, the drawings are a way for me to allow myself to discover. And so in that sense also, I think what's interesting as also a sculptor, the other side of the equation, is that because sculpture is a practical endeavor, meaning you need to make sure that things fit together, that they balance, there are lots of considerations that are more architectural than emotional or intuitive, um, that there are lots of things that I've drawn that end up becoming sculptures that, that I would never have been able to make starting as a sculpture. Maybe, um, maybe it is a good moment to um, go into color. Okay. Is it? Yeah, sure, however you want. Um, because you have a very specific um, sense of color, if I may. Hmm. Um, could you talk about it? Well, I'm a colorblind person. Um, I'm colorblind dichromatically, I think they say, and it's uh, red and green are my deficiencies. Um, this means that um, the best example that I can say is that if you take blue, you add red to it, it's purple. You add green to it, it's turquoise. So those two tertiary colors are difficult for me sometimes to differentiate. It doesn't mean that I don't see them. It just means that I may call turquoise purple or vice versa. Um, once colors get into an area of, uh, for example, pink, sometimes pink appears gray. Um, but um, one unique quality of at least my color blindness is that the more often I look at the colors that are difficult for me to see, the more likely I am to identify them. And so again, it's a kind of a, uh, an area where although I'm deficient, um, I think I end up spending a lot more time um, I, I have to try harder to understand color and therefore it becomes something that I actually w work on uh, quite a lot. For these sculptures, um, I work uh, with my wife on the color and what we do is, uh, it's never quite the same, it's a very organic process that's prone to misunderstandings and um, uh, accidental discoveries, um, but like everything else we do in our lives, we kind of like work together um, on this process. And so that means that um, she's seen the drawings, she's seen pictures of progress of the sculptures, she's had to listen to me talk about my desires and hopes for what I'm doing. Um, and then over breakfast, often we look at all the samples of colors that, we've, that are available to us for the dye. The sculptures are dyed almost entirely. There's a little bit of gouache or um, paint, but every now, most of the time it's just dye. And so we have an array of samples. Um, and then, you know, the process varies, but we put together a lot of different combinations. And in this way, we're able to um, she's able to help me understand the possibilities of, of what we can do. Um, sometimes this starts with uh, uh, language. For example, we're looking for something uh, sulfuric, something humid, something claustrophobic. Uh, sometimes we're looking for something tropical. Sometimes we're looking for something that's um, about the sea. Sometimes we're looking for something that's about the interior of the body. 
Sometimes we're, you know, you know it, on and on and on. Sometimes we're looking for classy combinations. Sometimes we're looking for combinations that are not so right. And so um, the unique thing about our relationship is that this is the person in the world that I trust the most. And I wouldn't, you know, I don't work with any assistants or, or anyone else in the studio. And so this is one person in my life that I care about the most that I've involved in this process. And so um, from the beginning, she's been uh, part of my creative team, I guess, uh, that, that helps me to um, make these decisions. In the early work, when I used paints, she had a color fan at work. I had a color fan at the studio. When I was looking for the color of butter, I would call up and say, I need to find butter. But w I want butter that looks like it's, you know, whatever. Well, this is fascinating. This is really, uh, of course, uh, uh, absolutely amazing. Firstly, this collaboration. And secondly, what we also mentioned when we discussed uh, before that uh, for you it is uh, a process of learning hmm. the color, how to use the color. Hmm. So the, 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 the sculpture uh, is a process of learning to see uh, the color. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think it is very beautiful. But that brings me, actually, this reflection bring, bring, brings me to the Lyon Biennial, hmm. in which you participated, hmm. and uh, which was curated by Gunak Varan in uh, 2013. And uh, this exhibition dealt, and I quote, with narrative art, but one which would focus on artists who are questioning or maybe introducing new types of narrative stru structures. So, and your, uh, your work with color comes through text, through exchange of um, ideas, descriptions hmm. in a sense, hmm. which I think is also uh, really very, very interesting. So uh, this is what I um, uh, wonder about was uh, your work in Lyon Biennial somehow connected to the narrative structure? But because you told me that you write a lot, hmm. that you also come from writing originally. Or reading, maybe yeah. more reading. Reading, well, yeah, yeah. reading, yeah. <laughs> mm. um, well, the project of Lyon was, um, had a lot to do uh, with uh, Greek and Egyptian mythology. Um, about what happens to the body when it passes from this world to the next. And so um, the, the project was set up um, with the wall. There was a large wall gouache, like a probably 16 feet high and 30 feet wide gouache um, that had a kind of triangle area. And the rest of the, um, the installation grew from the wall. And, it, and at, the ver at the threshold between the, the wall and the floor, there was a, a kind of an effigy of a body. Um, I mean, this is a very loose term because it, it had no face or, or skin, but it could be understood as a body in its horizontality. And um, growing out from that were a series of other things that uh, were presented on this kind of blue vaginal shaped carpet. And so the, the whole entire piece had a, a direction, directional quality as if um, this body that was being guarded by this uh, character, this Sharon, which is the person that takes the bodies across the, through the river sticks through to Hades, um, was guarding this thing. But in this context, the, the, uh, this guard was a gigantic blue penis. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was in performing inside this penis shaking this uh, big stick and m m molding these little tiny clay balls that I shot out 
Um, it was, sounds absurd when I explain it this way, but, um, but uh, I think it's amazing that we don't have an image of it so that you can all be thinking of a gigantic blue penis. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, the narrative was, uh, was very much implied. In my early work, though, narrative was a real, was a real thing, and I think as, I've prog as, as my work progresses, I think narrative becomes um, less and less a part of the work um, and that the, the content of the work vibrates in an area of uh, unknowability. I think that often for me, like coming from Yale, I felt like I needed to really be able and be responsible for the explanation of my endeavors. This is also something we wanted to discuss actually, because, um, and then we, we, uh, uh, we will mention education uh, with Paul later, <laughs> but um, you told me that it was quite interesting actually and quite a special as a combination of people and um, mm. the way artists were educated mm. uh, at Yale when, when you were there. Could you talk about it a little more? Well, I made a really sloppy uh, kind of uh, analogy, which was that uh, I think like in the late 90s, MTV had a show called The Real World. And The Real World, they selected the contestants or the people for the, the reality TV show based on how often they would fight with each other. And so they would have, you know, like a redneck from Kentucky and, uh, you know, like a, a gay uh, person. And so they knew that the, the religious guy from Kentucky would be annoyed by this person's outward gayness, and that was the purpose. And so I think for us, like, it, it, it's my understanding that, um, the, that when they were choosing people for Yale, the director at the time was Ron Jones, or maybe when I was chosen, it was John Newman, but that the kind of uh, setup was that they chose, you know, like a maker, and then they would ch choose a conceptual artist, and then they would choose an architect who was making kind of art, like Gordon Matta Clark, you know, like or something like in this vein, where it's like about architecture. But they sometimes chose designers. So was it about survival? Or you know, uh, so they did fight produce something, and, and did did they happen actually? I mean, I think it did. I mean, there was, you know, I was accused of being a witch, um, and uh, or a wizard. <laughs> Um, because I, you know, wanted to talk. We had, you know, when we had our theory classes, I, I would say things like, why aren't we just trying to um, learn telepathy? Like, why do we need theory? Like, can't we just work on something maybe more supernatural or something like this? And, but I think, uniquely, the class before mine seemed a little bit more aggressive, but I feel like the class that we lost the director of the program, so we had an intern, internal um, interim director. And so there really wasn't a philosophy for our, for our year. Um, and so I feel, I feel like we got along pretty well, but the, some of the second years, uh, the, the older students were, were a little bit aggressive. Mm -hmm. But I think that was the style, like as to almost like they were athletes and that they needed to com compete against one another to find out who was smarter or more um, correct in their practice. Uh, since we are uh, discussing the beginning, let's say of your um, of your well career, I, I think career is not a good word for for an artist of your parcours. Um, you also mentioned um, that some things uh, not necessarily inspired you, but 
some, uh, let's say, moments in American culture, popular cu culture, and very specific one, like shakers, hmm. uh, taught you things, or you borrowed things, or you revealed something in your work in the beginning. I think it is maybe interesting to explain what it, what it uh, was. You'd like for me to talk about the shakers? Yeah. Huh. Um, well, for me, over time, um, to kind of segue from talking about Yale was that it, it didn't occur to me maybe until 10 years ago that the, the actual work that I do could be content. Um, and by that I mean that there's a quality about the objects that I make that show their hand, that show the hand. Um, and this can be textural or this can be um, s smooth or it can be maybe just the number, the certain number of objects that are there that show the time that was used to make them. Um, it didn't occur to me for a really long time that this could be something that I talked about or shared with people, my process, my technique of making things. Um, and also especially the quality of working that is um, transformative psychologically, meaning that while you're working, you're, you are connected to a, a kind of nowness moment, meaning that you're only in the, in the present. So when you're drilling, let's say, hundreds and thousands of holes, and each hole ha has to go a certain depth so that it can get closest to the next hole, this is a, this is a kind of process in which you really can't think about much else than, than the diameter of the hole or how close it's getting to the next hole. It's difficult to think about paying bills or people's bad health or terrible politics, or these kinds of things. And so in this way, I became, um, I, I became aware that the actual time spent working was a very special process. And so during this time of thinking about this, um, in Kentucky, they have a Shaker village. Uh, the Shakers are uh, a sect of Christianity that no longer exists because they separated men and women, and they weren't, they weren't allowed to procreate. So they could only proselytize people, and so they actually went extinct. But the interesting thing that I found about the Shakers was that for them, working was prayer. And so for them, this quality of working led to a, a very unique sense of aesthetics. Uh, they designed furniture, textiles, tools, ovens, clothing, all these different things that had this very stringent but very peaceful aesthetic. And it kind of made me realize that although I'm not a real religious person, but as a spiritual person and a person who is looking to identify what gives me pleasure, that I realized that working gives me pleasure. And that like part of the reason why I work so much is because I find it a balancing activity. And that while I'm working, it's almost an extension of my meditation practice or something of this sort, that the sound of the tools, the feeling of making marks and taking away wood is calming. So you no, never outsource your work. Everything you produce, you produce yourself. Yes, I mean, I don't grow the trees. I buy the wood, but somebody else. <laughs> but yeah, everything is done by me, uh, including, I mean, not this installation photography, but I do all my own photography, packing, all of it. And uh, maybe I feel that we are running so fast, but we don't have so much time, actually. So um, we also, um, I, I wanted to, to talk about other artists. Oh, okay. Because your work, you are very informed 
about uh, about other artists work historical figures mm. uh, we mentioned Hans Bellmer mm. uh, Fernand Léger maybe you could mention some of them uh, maybe I don't know shall we start with Léger because we, we were well, because there are so many you work well you are inspired by that we, it wasn't hard for us to make a choice for this conversation you know who to mention what artists to discuss um, sure. I mean, my interest in Leger is, I mean, I, I love all the work, but I especially love the period in the 20s when he was flirting with purism. Um, him and Ozenfant and uh, Le Corbusier. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but um, but for me, I, I kind of considered him like a pre-computer computer, and that like the, his flirtation with uh, purism, with representing the empirical, was this kind of map of the way that psychology worked, whereas maybe cubism is a map of the way that the mind sees, that purism, at least his ver version of purism, was a kind of a map of the way that the mind sees and thinks. Um, and um, I especially grew to really like a period of Leger's work that was more scientific and empirical. It's a very short period uh, in the early 30s when he was hanging out with Charlotte P Periand, mm -hmm the designer, uh, and they would go for walks in the forest, and she was uh, someone that turned Leger onto uh, microscopic photography and more biomorphic abstraction, which is not something that you see very often in his art, in his work. Um, and how do you, because uh, in a sense, um, this is for me always um, a fascinating question, how artists use the other artists' work. Uh, or how do they refer, or how do they feel, or how is this interest is articulated somehow? Do you think that uh, you use something in your work uh, from huh, Leger? From yeah, and huh. uh, if so, what would it be? Is it, is it, uh, are there some ideas? So do you feel like you have a conversation with him through time? I mean, I think I'm obsessed with information, and I think because I work so often from my unconscious, and I'm not willing myself to come up with certain imagery, that it's very important that I digest lots of information so that there's a, a seed of all these people um, in my unconscious that, that gets synthesized. And so, of course, I'm indebted to them. But I often think of myself, I'm, uh, I, I, in a way, it's almost like, um, I'm just a super fan of looking at artworks, and a lot of times things that are totally different from what I do myself. Um, and so there, you know, I look at a lot of painting, and I don't make any painting really. Um, but I think that what's important for me is to um, look at as much information as I can and try to identify what my repeated um, desires are, what kinds of things I've, I find attractive. And what kind of and to try to tr understand what those things are, because I think for peop aesthetic people, you can open up a book and flip through it pretty quickly and identify which works you're you're into. And so I found this past um, this past term, I taught at NYU and presented a series of 13 lectures. And at the end of the term, I realized that I have a ver an extremely narrow focus for what I'm interested in. When I didn't, I don't really think of myself like that. I consume a lot of material, but the things that I end up liking have so much in common. And um, for example, for example, and this is something also someone we wanted to mention. Um, we wanted to mention the Douanier Rousseau, right? Mm -hmm. So, what, what would you, what, what, yeah, what do you take out? Well, of the thing that I like so much about Rousseau is is uh, is his connection to primitive 
primitivism or to our root. And that, and that for me, I think, um, he, because he, like uh, his aesthetic quality, the quality of his works appeared instantaneously. It wasn't, it wasn't as if he progressed through time that he, he painted this one way and that like whether critics liked it or not or whether it was made fun of or not or, or, um, or any of these things, he didn't really seem to, to be affected by that. And so all these, all these uh, artists that were in Paris at that time that were much younger than him, like Picasso, mm -hmm. um, they simultaneously loved him and made fun of him. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I like his kind of child, the, the childlike quality that he, he was not stupid but he was treated as if he was kind of mm. maybe slightly s special or something. Mm. And that mm. um, I just really r respond to this kind of distilled quality of his work where it's, it appears to be very simple, but in fact, it's pretty complex. Mm. And so I also really respond to the narrative of um, the beauty of nature that holds within it this kind of danger. Mm. And mm. so the, all the pictures of the jungles mm. with the animals eating each other mm. or the possibility that although nature is beautiful, it equally holds its mm. opposite, that it can mm. be dangerous or destructive. Mm. Mm. Um, maybe um, since uh, we are finishing soon, we would um, end by talking a little bit about the nature. Okay. Because I think it is something also very important in your work and in the way you uh, use wood because mm -hmm. we wanted to uh, to discuss a little bit the the material okay. as well. I mean, for me, I I hold the idea, although completely reckless and unscientific, that because we evolved, because the matter that that we're made of has existed from the beginning of the universe, that we've the, our molecules have entered all these different stages. Mm -hmm. So we were once stars, we became something inanimate like rocks or something else and then we evolved to be living cells and then from there we evolved and through so many different things until we come to the present day so now we, we are thinking uh, conscious organisms but although it's impossible to prove scientifically or maybe even a, a ridiculous idea I, I believe that we hold the remembrance of parts of each stage that we once were and so in that way, we, can, we have an intuitive understanding of the universe in its entirety, but we also have an understanding of the microscopic nature of our being from the, cell, from the basic cells or even atoms. And so for me, I believe that when relaxing and using your unconscious, that these things are available to you um, and that it's up to uh, the right experts or people that have very specialized disciplines to recognize these connections. And so for me, um, I've noticed in my work when I'm trying to understand what I've done that, that I see there are examples of, of these narratives or shapes or occurrences empirically. Um, but for me, the, the, the wood part of it, I think, is, is nice because the wood has a kind of impermanent feel, like versus something like bronze, let's say, or marble and that there's a kind of warm quality to it and that it's also grown, it was also something else, and that it's also, it itself was transforming until it was cut down and then I transform it back into something else. And so I think it's a, 
I've, I, I really like to work with it because it's a warm and natural material versus plastic, let's say. Uh, maybe it is a good moment to open uh, to open this to the audience if you have questions. Uh, you in the back? I hope so. <laughs> well, to answer the sexual, yes, of course. Um, I mean, I think when I was a younger person, the sexual nature was a, a much more overt, and maybe I was interested in the intersection of sex and violence, consensual violence, you know? Um, but I think now maybe this thing that people call sexual could be more diversified and hidden in terms of reproduction, the reproduction of cells or the the twinning or multiplying of shapes, um, uh, the deep feeling of division when cells grow. Um, and then as far as the trajectory of the work, uh, of course, I mean, I think there are two people inside of me, one that is aroused by repetition and then one that's aroused by innovation. And I think that they kind of vibrate on each other and one tries to cancel the other out. Should I repeat, is repeating okay or, do, or should I stay on the same thing and investigate it and keep it like, you know, should it go horizontally or vertically? I try to do both. Hmm. Paul? Um, since you, you referred to um, the aspect of the unconscious in your working process, and um, I've actually heard you, not today, but previously, referred to your drawing passes process, I mean your drawings as having to do with automatic writing. Mm -hmm. um, and really like the references to some of the artists this mentioned, you know, also to me relate back to surrealism. And so I'm wondering if you could speak more about, you know, this uh, idea of going into, I mean, to me, automatic writing is uh, where the sort of the conscious mind where you purposefully put yourself in a state outside of the conscious mind and encourage entering into another state associated with the unconscious. And for me, unconscious, like there's an association with like the opposite of identity in a way right. or of our usual kind of identity. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about are there certain rituals that you go through to go into that alternate state um, and also do you only do that in your studio? Have you ever done that publicly? Is the um, blue penis like an example of a public moment of the unconscious? Uh, oddly enough, I, I primarily draw at home. Um, for this show, I did start doing these charcoal drawings, which take a lot longer, and I, and I do them in the studio, and I do them normally. Um, I, I really feel like I draw, I have this like, this almost this, um, sour longing feeling where I need to do something to feel creative. I need to like r have this feeling of making something new or at least touching something old, you know? And so um, normally when I draw at home, I draw very small and, and there's not much, um, there isn't much of a, it's not a dual state. It's almost like I'm 
I'm there, I could be watching TV or on the sofa with Bangu, but I'm kind of drawing. And because, the, because there's, like I was saying, there's no risk, I can just turn the page if it's not working or doesn't feel right. And I just don't, I think maybe the state of unconsciousness is, is more also what I call just relaxing and not worrying about the result. And so um, when I do the charcoal drawings, it's much more of what you're describing because I'm listening to music, I'm alone in the studio. Um, I think because the charcoal drawings are larger, I'm using like different kinds of muscles and I'm, and, and I'm actually just kind of letting, almost like a Ouija board. If you ever used a Ouija board where you like, your, your hand is on the thing and you're participating with somebody else, but it's kind of moving on its own and you're not really thinking about where it's moving. And that's, that's kind of what drawing is for me. And so for years, I also talked about muscle memory and how like, there were certain kinds of things that I did over and over again that I could attribute to the way that maybe a basketball player practices free throws or something like this, and that it's important for me to practice all the time so that I you know, can, can invent, strengthen new muscles and new ways of drawing. Um, I've never drawn in public, it sounds crazy, um, <laughs> but it uh, could be entertaining. I did want to start, uh, I did, I, I, I mean, I used to, really want to do like a life drawing, like a new life drawing thing for like artists, you know, like my friends and stuff, do that, do that. I could do that, but I don't know if I could um, create on stage. <laughs> yeah, I do, but I do, there's something about drawing that feels very private to me because you, you have to, like you say, it's interesting the way that you say it, but you do have to kind of be in the zone to, to, to do it well, I think. And so it might be hard to do that if somebody was watching over my shoulder. Uh, do, are there other questions? You mentioned being accused of being a witch. <laughs> and you just mentioned uh, about using a, like, a Ouija board. Hmm. So I was curious to know, like, kind of maybe near Yelders or even currently today, if you still uh, explore supernatural uh, hmm ways of exploring or trying to to create and if you do still that could you kind of give other examples um i mean i'm not big into <laughs> the supernatural or to into the occult um but i mean i i there is a, a certain part of my being that's like mystical and that there's a that i do believe in the transformation of materials and that i do believe in kind of um that the physical activity or performance or activation can can unlock like a, a higher state of being. Um, but in, I mean, I think in uh, in graduate school it was more just because I, I I was very frustrated by the amount of theory, and I did I don't I did I wasn't a huge fan of the restriction that theory put on the creative process and the interpretive process for me. You know, maybe it's it's not my style of my strength isn't in necessarily intellect as it is, is intu in, uh, intuition. And so I think that was why they accused me of being a witch because I was, it was not as fashionable to be in intuitive in, when I was in graduate school as it was to be an intellectual. Uh, uh, maybe just, um, just the last one to, to uh, from, from, from me because I, you already spoke about it, but I really wanted to, uh, to ask you, um, explain a little bit more about this muscle uh, memory, because it is usually something which uh, is uh, 
uh, referred to dancers, so mm. dancers as opposed to have muscle memory, mm. um, rarely painters, <laughs> in a sense, or draftsmen, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, I think for me, I, I'm always searching for an explanation that's not um, so intellectual. And so I think for me, like I, you know, I use my muscles so much that I actually have like, you know, pain and, and stuff from working because I do the same processes over and over again. And um, I once also read that, that often when your brain is sending electronic signals to your muscles to move, that they've identified that sometimes the origin of those electrical impulses is not um, always from the brain to the thing, that sometimes the impulses come actually closer to the, to the muscles that move, meaning that muscles themselves might have some sort of consciousness, which made me start to think, if that's possible, then maybe there's like a kind of way in which your body moves that's individual to you that could easy, easy, easier, more easily explain sensibility than, let's say, for example, that you study or that you, you know, that you might, there might be, every person might have a singular way in which they draw, um, which might be the, the practicing over and over of the same kinds of things, and that th therefore then your muscles have this kind of memory, and that that memory is the, is the that your sensibility then is the pro product of that m muscle memory. Yeah. I mean, it's, not, it's not scientific. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think it's, it's uh, beautiful. Um, Marty, thank you so much. Thank you.